Welcome to Six Degrees of Roger Nielsen, featuring Vinnie Maltz and presented by Bloodline Hockey. Each episode, we'll dive into discovering meaningful stories and connections that have helped hockey coaches and players shape their professional philosophies and personal character through the art of sport. Our show is designed to honor one of the greatest pioneers of coaching innovation and connection, Coach Roger Nielsen. Yo, yo, guys, and welcome to another episode of Six Degrees of Roger Nielsen. I'm your host, Coach Vinny Maltz, and today we've got Carrie Frazier, a man who needs no introduction to the hockey world. He's an absolute legendary former referee in the game, and we all know he's got the best hair in the league, and uh, he knows it too. <laughs> Carrie draws off of 30 years of NHL refereeing experience. He refed in 12 Stanley Cup finals and over 261 Stanley Cup playoff games. And uh, you know, today we, we had an incredible discussion about how coaches and referees can do a better job respecting and connecting with each other. We discussed leadership and personal accountability. We got some great stories and lessons from Wayne Gretzky and Theo Fleury. These are absolute gem stories to learn from and hear from uh, from Kerry today. And personally, I absolutely love this human being. Uh, he's seriously one of the biggest veteran beauties in the game today. And I hope you guys enjoy our experience as much as I did. And a quick update on Roger Nielsen's Coaches Clinic live event. It has been canceled for this year, but we have adapted into Roger Nielsen's Coach's Connection during the coronavirus experience that many of us are currently facing. Uh, we're offering a free online resource filled with rich coaching content. you find some great interviews and presentations in our Facebook group. Uh, we're producing many different ways for our coaches to connect and learn from each other. Simply search Roger Nielsen's Coach's Connection on Facebook and we can grant you access into our new world uh, that we have created to help support you during this current challenge that we are all facing across the globe. And our podcast is sponsored by Bloodline Hockey. Bloodline Hockey has been at the forefront of developing and pioneering a mental performance mindset shift for players, coaches, and parents worldwide. If you are a coach, player, or parent looking for mental performance programming specific to the hockey culture, please visit bloodlinehockey.com to learn more about how Bloodline can assist your mental performance needs. So excited to have a man who needs pretty much no introduction, an absolute legend. Pumped to have on Carrie Frazier with us today. And Carrie, the one thing I always love to start off with right away is, please, I know the one thing everybody wants to know, how do you make your hair so perfect every day? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it just sort of like my, my uh, oldest boy, I had him at the Stanley Cup final uh, one year in New Jersey. We had the pregame sleep ready to go to the rink. We popped up from bed. He had the bed head, uh, Ryan, and uh, I got up and my hair was like, I didn't even have to run a breast through it. And he said, Dad, do you sleep with a mold on that thing? <laughs> the bottom line is, as Simone Gagne told me one time, Carrie, you've got to train your hair. Train it. <laughs> so this this salad is well trained. Uh, it, uh, Kathy, uh, my wife, had me uh, do a makeover way back when we had the, the rendezvous uh, break in the NHL season one time. We went oh, to Florida. She said, that beetle cut that you got, it's no bueno. You got you to gotta change that out. So I ended up having it all blown back and styled. My first game, Vinny, back was in Madison Square Garden. It was like back then in the 80s. We're talking uh, rivalry, Rangers uh, and the uh, Islanders, right? Yep. And the house lights were all down in uh, Madison Square Garden when the players came on. And all of a sudden, they flipped the house lights on. And defenseman for the uh, the Islanders, Pat Price, he took a double take. He said, who the heck's this new referee? 
He skated over to me and said, Fraze, I didn't recognize you. What did you do? Drive over to the rink in a convertible? (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, Vinny. That's the hair story. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Beautiful, buddy. Beautiful. Well, you know, as we discussed, I'm fortunate to uh, have been able to build a friendship with you. And we've we've chatted a couple of times, buddy. And through the years. And it was, it was pretty awesome of uh, months ago when we had met up at the uh, level four at USA hockey thing. And you're like, Oh yeah, I remember you pretty good player. Pretty good player. I started telling all, all my friends, I'm like, Hey, Frazier sounds pretty good player. Remember me? <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty cool, man, to get you on. And uh, what I'm more excited about, right. Is that, uh, you know, obviously with Roger, the whole big thing of creating this podcast, and I definitely want to get into that of your relationship with him and so that, but the big part, I think that's an opportunity here today is to really get into the understanding of referees, coaches, families, relationships of understanding the world of refereeing, right? Of what we're going through. And so that, and from a coach's perspective, how can we help, right? How can we help the industry of to, to think more, be thoughtful as a coach and stuff like that? Cause we, as we've discussed, you know, a big part of the game is so much of understanding that relationship with the referee is so important. And it's such a big part that sometimes we just kind of look at it as like, oh, it's, yeah, it's a part of the game, but it's not. But the reality is it's a huge, huge part because of the emotional factors and the respect factors and all that. So very excited to obviously have you on and, and to get into all this stuff and get after a brother. Well, Vinny, first of all, uh, what often players and coaches fail to recognize is that there is a third team on the ice. Mm. That third team are, are, you know, now we're looking at uh, maybe two referees and two linesmen, a team of four. And you don't want to have to play against that third team. Mm. There's only one team that you should be playing against, and that's the guys on the other side yeah. in the in the jerseys uh, and, and, you know, 18 and two, uh, two goalies, yeah. not the four officials. And, you know, I can, I can tell you that uh, what I've seen is uh, over time, is that uh, the most successful teams are the ones that don't get involved with the officials. They understand that they have tough calls to make and they're not always going to go your way and you're going to disagree with them, but you have to move past that. You can't stick and dwell on a missed call or they're screwing me tonight. And the most important thing that that I can share with with your uh, viewers is you must develop productive, positive relationships with all factions of the game. And I'm talking the officials here, too. This isn't a one-way street. This, they're not just the boss and in control and in charge. They have to work hard at developing relationships with the players, the coaches, the general managers, and depending on the level of, of, uh, the, of your uh, uh, rise to at the you know, minor league level or at the professional level, mm-hmm. it also includes media. It includes fans, and you you can't set yourself apart from the game either as a player, a coach, or an official. Really important. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that's a big part right there, right, is that I think where we understand the appreciation of it, but I think a lot of people don't realize you have to work hard at it. Like it's not an easy thing to do, to build those productive relationships. You, you act, It's an actual day-to-day process. Like you have to work on it. Let me share a quick story with uh, – Rick Tockett. When mm. Rick Tockett was a young captain for the Philadelphia Flyers, mm. Tock was a was a very Type A, uh, aggressive uh, power forward. He was he could he could shoot. He could skate. He could fight. Uh, 
he was a great leader. His teammates respected him. And he was like 22 years old, young captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. And he was getting all kinds of misconducts because of his emotional detachment. He would he would lose it and he would start yelling at the officials and they'd bang him with 10. I had a game with talk uh, very early in his captaincy in uh, the old spectrum in Philadelphia. And again, he came to me, you know, screaming and yelling and cursing about something. And this is something that I learned. Open palms means peace. Mm. This is offensive. This is I'm giving you a lecture and that's I'm going to knock you out. So mm. the open hands and I, I, I always kept my my language, my my voice inflection at a monotone level, not rising to the level on yeah. the other side, emotionally out of control. So I went, Rick, please calm down. I'd like to have a word with you. And he stopped and I had his attention and I said, I want to listen. You are a great captain, young captain, youngest ever in the history of the Flyers. You can do it all. You can skate, you can fight, you can shoot. Your players respect you. But I said, you can't do it from that penalty box over there that you're spending far too much time in. My colleagues are banging you with 10 often. And I said, you can't play from there. And all of a sudden, I saw the light go on. And he thought about it. And I said, now, if you have a question for me or any of my colleagues, please come in a respectful kind of way. And I know I will give you all the time you need. And I'm sure they will as well. And let's keep you where you belong on the ice, playing against that other team and not playing against these stripes mm. that I have on now. Mm. Uh, and, you know, from that moment, a seed was planted. Rick Tockett and I had a fantastic relationship over the course of his career. We're still friends today. And it started in that moment. Mm. So don't <clears throat> discount listeners as to how you can make a positive di- uh, difference, even if you have a difficult relationship with, with uh, an official or uh, a, an opponent or a, a teammate, you, uh, coach, you have to be bigger. You have yes. to maybe sometimes step up and take control of the situation and do what you know is going to get you to where you want to be. Yeah, amen, amen. And, and I think what's interesting about that, right, is that for you to have that, have gained that perspective, I think this is the big part that people have to appreciate and understand of, you know, talking about working at it. Where, where do you feel that influence came from? How you grew it, right? Of where you were able to see it in that moment, because most in the game are heated and passionate and all these words that we try to mask with the fact that you have to learn how to control yourself as a human being and build relationships and understand connection. Where did that come from for you of like to have developed? Because you have such an interesting way that I've seen that's so unique in the game that you get it and love to hear about that. And so people understand where that influence came from. Well, this is really important uh, for everyone to pay attention to. We acquire certain things. I was a player. Uh, I played to the junior A level in Ontario. Uh, obviously small in stature, but my background, where I came from, formed me as a young player, as as I developed from the schoolyard uh, to the the uh, the rink to the sports arena uh, as a player. And my father was a, a professional uh, minor pro player. He played in the IHL. Uh, he played in, in Europe. Uh, he was a fighter. He was he was a goon back then. Really a tough guy. Forearms like Popeye, little man. But boy, could he go. 
And he taught me how to fight when I was 13 years old. Uh, I, I played on AAA uh, teams throughout my peewee all the way to midget. We won Ontario championships. Five guys went off our team to play in the NHL. Wayne Merrick won four Stanley mm-hmm. Cups with the Islanders. We had great players, great teams. First round picks of uh, two first round picks in the NHL draft. But I was the guy when we played midget AAA for my dad that he tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, go take care of that. Mm. Go take care of business. Mm. And I was a lefty. I was fast hands. I was fearless. And I fought the big guys. Um, if a little guy beat up the big guy, you could own, you could own the ice. And, uh, I learned that very quickly from, from midget right through to, to junior a. Um, now I'm not a guy to be intimidated. Okay. Mm. Now all of a sudden, I don't go the pro route. I don't go to the U.S. college scholarship offers. I end up at a referee school, and two days later, I'm at the NHL training camp for officials. They signed me to a contract. Wow, wow. I'm here. I'm going to be a referee. Wow. I still carried this, this component, this <clears throat> aggressive, this chip-on-the-shoulder, type-A personality. It was going to cause me to fail. And one of my first games as a referee, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I had to learn on the job, Vinny. <laughs> and the home team was getting their butts kicked. Players were frustrated. You know the drill. Every uh-huh. another goal, another goal scored. People hometown yelling and throwing stuff on the ice. Mm-hmm. Players frustrated. They'd come up, mouth off to me. Boom! I bang them with a misconduct because I'm the boss. Mm-hmm. I had them. I had them sitting three deep in the penalty box towards the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Finally, the coach, home team coach, had enough of me. He sent his captain over. He said very politely, "Mr. Referee." My coach wants to know if he can get a penalty for thinking. I said, well, if he doesn't think out loud, he's probably going to be okay. Now, am I able to swear on this podcast? Sure. <laughs> okay. I matter. The captain then responded, well, in that case, he thinks you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I, I found uh-huh. the humor and I started to laugh. And I looked over at the coach that was standing up on the bench and he was, you know, ugly, mad, pissed oh, yeah. off. And all of a sudden, he saw my reaction, and he smiled, and then he started to laugh. Yeah. And it was that was one of my first lessons, that I need to relax. I need to enjoy this game. I love the game. Mm. I got to love what I do to be part of it. So I started not to take myself so seriously. But the real defining moment was a, was a situation I had in my very first season in the NHL, early in that year with the great one, Wayne Gretzky. And the Mm. Philadelphia Flyers were playing in uh, the Northlands Coliseum. Very first shift, it was Bobby Clark and the boys. Very first shift, Gretz got touched. Boom, he took a dive. And I know Mm. it was a dive because as he was falling, he turned his head to look towards me to see if I called it before he hit the ice. Mm. Well, again, Little man syndrome, and I and the crowd got on me right away, and I thought, okay, Bucko, I'm going to show you. You're going to play on your knees tonight, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. I never called a penalty or an infraction on him all night. Called everything else that needed to be called, but not on Wayne. And the more he uh, attempted to dive, the more determined I was that I was going to show him. Mm-hmm. With a minute and change left in the game, and the Flyers up by one goal best opportunity for that great oiler team young guys was a power play Pelly Lindbergh caught the pluck puck I blew the whistle stopped play Gretzky behind the net in his office mm-hmm. nobody around him jumped in the air 
threw his hands out this way, feet out the other way, boom, belly flop on the ice. Mm. Bobby Bobby Clark skated over him with no teeth. He said, get up, Gretzky, you effing baby. I said, Wayne, what are you doing? I said, there was nobody within 15 feet of you. He said, you wouldn't have called it anyway. You haven't called a blank thing all night. I said, you're right. I'm going to start right now. Boom, you got two front sports for like Honda. Mm. He's, he said, thanks. It's about effing time you called something. And he stormed off the ice to the dressing room. Mm. Now, the Flyers won the game that night. Another learning lesson here. Mm. After every game, from the time I started to the time I finished, I replayed the game in my mind afterwards, back in the hotel. Was there something I could have done better? Even if the game went okay, there's things we can do better. Mm. And I wanted to be the best I could be. Mm. This night, it hit me like a board between the eyes. I compromised my integrity, the rules, the game that I loved, the employer that I worked for, the National Hockey League, and the players that participated in that game. I was drawn in emotionally to a confrontation with a player, not just a player, the greatest player that probably the game has ever known. Mm -hmm. And I had to be better. But there was more than that below the surface. Right. Why was I like that? I had to figure that out, and I recognized that that upbringing that I had, that, that little man syndrome, that fight the big guys, compete hard, never let them know you're hurt, the stuff that was ingrained in me by a, a very aggressive uh, father and coach, mm -hmm. I had to control it because at that point, it was controlling me. The thermometer in me would rise and rise if I was put to the test and challenged, and sooner it got to here, and boom, it came out, and I'm ready to go. Yeah. And ultimately, I had the whistle, I had the armbands, I had the authority, I was in control, mm. I had the ultimate say. But I had to be better. I had to be the best that I could be. And I would have failed had I not had that wonderful lesson that I learned that night in my first encounter with Wayne Gretzky. I really have a lot to owe him. Uh, but we've got to figure it out ourselves. Your listeners, your players, your coaches, you've got to figure out what makes you tick. If you're yelling and screaming at your players' coaches mm. and it's not being successful, if you're beating them up, you've got to, you got to uh, deal with each player based on their personal makeup mm. and the things that you can do to get the best out of them. Yeah. You've got to be a mentor, a leader. And that's what a referee ultimately should be. He should be a leader. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a long answer, but trust me, folks, you've got to figure out everybody knows their strengths. You mm -hmm. know, oh, I'm fast. I've got great hands. Oh, yeah. I'm a scorer. I'm a defensive <clears throat> specialist, whatever. But when you figure out the things that you're deficient in, that mm -hmm. will control you, that will reflex, that just come out, they're ingrained in you. When you control those, you're going to have success. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a couple of things uh, <clears throat> that are interesting about that. I think th the first thing is the fact that I had to be better. I think that's that commitment, right? That's one of the things that like I, <clears throat> I was using on my Instagram of all in coach Vin and where that came from was years ago when I went, I was like, okay, I'm all in like what I'm committing to. This is what I'm committing to. You know, want to get into the mental performance, want to have more time with my family, want to impact, you know, players into believing more. And it was a commitment at that time that then went into, this is what I'm going to do. And I think that's the part right there that a lot of times with coaches is that 
We say the mission statement. We say the nice words of what we think should be said. But the moment the heat kicks in, boom, we lose control. And that's the part that reminding ourselves, but this is my commitment, right? That I chose to be a coach. I chose to lead. So with that comes a responsibility. So what am I committed to? And one of the things you said there that was, I loved, it gave me an eye opener uh, um, at the coaches thing when you had brought up the whole thing about the deficiencies of looking at it that way. Because our whole programming is all about finding what your strengths are. Because a lot of players actually, especially young players, don't actually know how to be confident in what they're strong at. They're very confident in what they're weak at. But it's a very different dynamic from a leadership standpoint as an adult versus a player of where they mentally are, especially in the younger days. And so we don't think as much about the weaker parts because it kind of hits on the confidence levels and all that stuff. But when they get older, once they hit juniors and higher and especially coaches and all that, that portion, that part right there of, okay, what do I know about what is a great challenge for me? And that's a big, mis- big misconception that happens with our culture where people are like, well, I hear you all the time talking about strengths, strengths, strengths. And it's like, no, no, no. It's not that I don't want to deal with challenges, but what, what you need to understand is what's the one thing that does challenge you big time? And that you have to identify. Like we kind of look at it as three to one. Okay, well, there's three things that I know that I'm good at as a player, but what's the thing that's really challenges me that throws me off? And as coaches, that's the part that when we talked about with referees, is we felt like that was the anchor of where what really takes you over in the heat of the game where you just lose complete control. And it's that heat, that emotion you have towards referees of where it's like, do you know how to control that in the moment and see it and say, yeah, you know what? I'm not good at that relationship. And if I could learn how to manage that, boom, that can change everything. So I think that's the part that I'd love to get into is when you look at it for yourself of, you had those epiphanies. You had those awakenings at that time, right? But then as you went through that process, the residue is always there. How did you, how did you keep it so it stayed top of mind? So you trained it. So it was like an actual day to day, like thoughtful process of, okay, this is a challenge for me. This is a weakness that I need to work on. How, how did you train it? How did you work on it to make sure that I'm going to do this and I'm going to make sure that I get it done and keep it top of mind? Because you can't just say, okay, I'm going to change. Like, there's a, like everything else, you have to go to the gym and do squats and work out and do push-ups and eat right and all these things. It's the same, you know, philosophy. So I'd love to hear more about that take on it because I love some of the stuff I've heard from you before on this. That's an awesome question, Vinny. And I, I will tell you that there has to be, in anything that you do, there has to be a conscious awareness mm. and a desire to control the negative that you recognize. Mm. So for me... In the broad spectrum, what was my objective? Now, I know that I have this, this problem, this, this characteristic that is part of me. Mm. I, I can't flush it away. It's going to be there forever, and it exactly. is to this day. But do I let it reflex and control me like it had been? No. I'm going to control it. So, A, recognize it. Mm. Then listen to yourself. As, as, as this volcano starts in the pit of your stomach, when you're challenged, and, and we're talking about aggressive behavior here coming your way. So when it was, when I was put in an aggressive situation, uh, highly emotionally, uh, energy charged situation, confrontation, 
I'd feel it. It's there. It's still mm-hmm. boiling. And it would start to rise because I'm getting, you know, F-bombed on the other side or, you know, it's, it's a nose-to-nose sure. kind of dialogue. First of all, I took care of my body language. Instead of, you know, tightness in the shoulders and, like, adrenaline muscles twitching, ready to fight, uh, I relaxed. I took I took a breath. I could feel it coming. It's coming. But I listened to what I said. I thought about, first of all, what I was going to say before I said it. And once that emotion and that fire gets to here, when it comes out, it's hard to pull it back. So in that and I use it as a thermometer, that body of mine, I would internally feel it coming, coming, coming. And then I would relax my shoulders. I'd take a breath. I'd use positive body language, and I'd control the situation, not in an offensive way, but in a way where you're all upset, Vin, and I'm going to say, whoa, please, can we have a conversation here, Vin? Mm -hmm. As opposed to me saying, one more word out of you, and you're going to get it. No. So, and I, I recognized at the end of the game, at the end of this drill, and I'm starting here controlling me, but where do I want to get to at the end? I want to develop a positive relationship with the guy on the other side that's screaming and yelling at me. And it was a coach. It was a, the talk-it situation. I've, I've calmed people down. Brian Murray was a coach that was very emotional in Washington. He was getting all kinds of bench penalties. He'd stand up on the bench. He'd scream and yell and spit and stutter. And he was getting, like, mega uh, bench penalties from my colleagues and in a game in the old cap center he's up on the boards one time he's yelling and screaming and flapping his arms and i thought you know what i'm gonna take a risk i'm gonna go over and talk to this coach and try and calm him down and try and create a relationship so with brian emotionally supercharged i looked up at him with the hands open and i said brian i'd love to have a conversation with you but to do so I need you to please get off the bench and calm down. What's what's he going to say? Go screw yourself? I'm I'm requesting an interview with him, really. And he immediately got down. His voice level became, you know, consistent with mine. And I said, now, you may not agree with what I have to tell you, but this is the reason that I did or didn't do whatever it was that he was yelling about. He thought, thought for a second, Vinny. He said, well, you're right about one thing. He said, I don't agree with what you just said, but thanks for coming over and talking to me. Mm. In Brian Murray's, and this is like 1982, in Brian Murray's post-game dialogue with the media, he brought up the fact that referee Fraser, for the first time, a referee came over and gave me an explanation. Mm. While I didn't agree with him, I appreciated that. That's all I want. Mm. And from from that moment, again, a relationship was developed with Brian Murray throughout the rest of our career of res- mutual respect. And Brian knew if he had a question, hey, Kerry, and I would come over and say, what's up, Brian? And I'd give him an answer. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. So, players, if you have a problem with a specific referee, you need to be bigger than maybe his attitude. Maybe he's got the bad attitude like I had. Maybe you should be the one that takes the initial step and go before the game and say, shake his hand or or you see him with a coffee in his hand at the coffee bar and, and just say, you know what, 
I, I, I want to apologize for my behavior and my reaction to certain things. And I'd really like to, you know, get off on the right foot here. Uh, is there anything that I can do that I, or that I can help you with or that I'm doing that offends you? Because I, I really want to create a good relationship here. We're all in this game together, and I'd like to help you out as much as I'd like you to help me out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huge, huge. Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> no, not at all. And, and what's interesting, right, to see that you went through the game for so many decades, did you notice how much of a shift, you know, culturally, society-wise, of how, do you feel like back in the day there was more of that, let's talk, catch up, and also, and then as time's going on, the, the connection's gotten just less and less as time yeah, went on? Did you, yeah. did you feel like it was like um, it changed as time went on? Yeah, for sure. And and I think... Uh, part of it is uh, the the league uh, didn't want uh, uh, officials to go to the bench and talk to the coaches, put themselves in vulnerable situations, mm-hmm. uh, delay the game, uh, not long drawn out dialogues. Right. Uh, but and names off the back numbers. Uh, I had Shane Doan come to me one time, captain of the uh, Arizona Coyotes, and before the game he said, "Hey, Fraze, uh, what's your referee partner's name?" And uh, I told him, I said, why do you have a problem with them? He said, no, no. He said, I, I just like to call the guys by their first name, and I don't know anybody anymore. Wow. That was a big message. Wow. I, don't know, I don't know any of these guys anymore. They got no name on their back. They got helmets. They got visors. They're like vanilla. They're, there's no personality that's being demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe those guys aren't working at introducing themselves to the players. Every time I had a new player, I'd check the roster sheet before mm. the game. I, I'd do my homework. Okay, oh, yeah. we got a new player here. He's a rookie. Centerman. First time he came onto the ice, I would go over and introduce myself to him. It might be the opening faceoff. And I'd say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm Kerry Fraser. Uh, I I know you're a, you're a high pick. And uh, first year, I want to wish you all the best. Stay safe, kid. And if there, if you have a question for me, don't be afraid to come up and ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm here and I'm available. So that, and I could see the look on on young players. We're talking 18 year old kids, right? They've been superstars. They're in the league, mm-hmm. and but they probably I was. They were wearing diapers when I was doing the Stanley Cup Finals. Oh, yeah. And I don't and I don't think I'm a big shot, but I could see that there was like, a, oh wow, that's really cool. Like mm-hmm. he know he knows my name. Yeah. It's take that step, guys. Take a risk. Step yeah. outside your comfort zone. Oh yeah. Well, that's it, right? That that. I think the biggest part is that we don't. Unfortunately, we don't give permission to feel that way. To to believe that's the most important thing. Like that's one of the things that even as a coach that I evolved on and realized so much is how much of what we were doing with players is giving them permission to believe in what their game is. To believe in you can go talk to your coach more. As long as you yeah. do it in a respectful tone, you have the right language, you're going to come in, and the right timing as well. Like pick pick it, make sure you're smart about when you go in, but that's what coach is there for. And it's amazing to me how much I'm battling at times with players for it'll take them two, three, four weeks sometimes before they finally go and have a conversation that once they had it, it was like, ah, their nervous system, everything feels so much better. And it was like, wow, all that tension, that tension that you left in there all over mm-hmm. when you were being influenced, given permission to do it, and you that fear 
to just go build that connection is real. And it's, it's sad in a lot of ways that if you think of how a season, the, the experience of a season goes, it amazes me, man, how much that goes on, right? Like of how yeah. people are just afraid to just say something simple to each other and just make sure that sometimes might be a little d- difficult, but it's just, just, let's just have a normal, decent conversation. What you said about tone, right? Of how just calmly is amazing that, that in and of itself, that's like doing the push-ups and building resistance is that tone piece right there that you talked about. So important. And it's amazing to me how much it's a struggle, that connection part. Well, here's the follow-up uh, and the end game to the Wayne Gretzky situation in my first game with him. The next time I saw him, I apologized. Mm. I went up to him and I said, listen, I, I am really sorry for the way I uh, officiated that game uh, that we had together. I'm so wrong. It was a valuable lesson for me. Uh, let's come together and understand. Uh, I've learned some things about myself, but do me a favor. Uh, please try and stay on your feet. You're, you're the best. You're a great player. But do me a favor. Don't go down easy. Uh, and I'm going to work hard if you do. Uh, that I'm not going to let it affect me personally. Uh, but I, I really want to apologize for the way that I behaved. I was so wrong. Uh, and so that set the table for future. Understand that you don't always have to be right. If you think that you always have to be right, whether it's in a discussion with your teammate, your coach, the referee, you're going to lose yes. because we're not always right. Yes, exactly. And that's so hard for people to understand. And, and, and I admitted simple. when I made a mistake. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But how simple is that if you can keep that concept top of mind and realize, you know, like I, I like to always talk about, I don't know. I don't know how, what this player is going through at home. I don't know what this coach is going through at home away from the rink. There's a lot I don't know. So I can't sit right. there and judge and think that I know when I don't know. <laughs> but keeping that awareness is such an important part to the battle of that emotional well, piece. As a coach, it's important that you do know. And I'm going to take a, a situation uh, way back. Uh, there was a player from the Philadelphia Flyers by the name of Tim Kerr. Timmy Kerr was a power forward. He, he scored 50 a year. I mean, he, he was a big tree in front of that net. Wonderful human being. Really a nice guy. But I did my homework in this particular game in the Spectrum one night. I looked at the stat sheets, and, and I'm seeing that. I want to know what they did against the previous uh, meeting with the teams, and I see Tim Kerr hasn't scored in like six games. That's a almost a season for a guy that scores 50. He's in a drought. Mm. He's tight. He's choking the stick. But I know that going into the game. Mm. And there was a play going to the net with him at the crease and a cross ice uh, pass. And he ticked. He moved his foot uh, off his toe of his skate. And I thought directly into the net as he tried to reach for it with his stick. Mm. I disallowed the goal. This nice, mild-mannered Tim Kerr went ballistic. Mm cursing and swearing at me I, I mean he was out of control now had i not done my homework right. and i not recognized that this guy is in a drought he, this is uncharacteristic for him i possibly probably would have given him an unsportsmanlike or a misconduct right. i just stayed away from him hmm. the very next shift tim kerr came out and he apologized for his behavior his conduct wow. he said i'm really sorry but he said, Kerry, I just want you to know that I did tip that from my skate. It just ticked my stick before it crossed the goal line. Mm. Now, I said, Timmy, if you said that that hit your stick, you're an honest man. 
I apologize. I, I didn't see it happen that way, and I'm so sorry. Yeah. Go go get another one. He scored another one that night. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, and he was off the schneid. But again, uncharacteristic. I took the the approach. I want to know going into that game where everybody's at. Mm. Maybe there was a big fight between Dave Brown and somebody else on the other side. I want to know if there's a grudge here. I want to do all my homework. So yeah. as a coach, I think it's incumbent upon you as a coach to say, where are all my players at? Hey, kid, how's school going? How are you yeah. doing at school? Everything okay? How are things at home? Uh, you know, that's a dicey kind of subject, but sure, whatever, yeah. it, whatever it is, you need to see the tendencies of a player. If if he starts to slide a little bit, maybe there is something off the rink that's bothering him. Mm. It, it, yeah, fascinating. Actually, you know, one of the things that I love is, um, and I've read about a little bit too, and hearing it from you was uh, for our listeners to the Theo Fleury story. I love oh, hearing boy. that because that is a big thing when we talk about mental health and how players are dealing with all that stuff. And I'd love for you to share that so people understood of like when you talk about that relationship and knowing something and all that and what you had done, what a, what a phenomenal just story. Well, coaches and players, we never know how we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, simple little things, uh, that we don't recognize that make a difference in the life of someone that we encounter. Theo Fleury, as we know now, was beyond just his volatility and his aggressiveness and his anger. We know why. It's, it's an awful story of, of abuse as a, uh, of a young, uh, very skilled hockey player. He carried that throughout his career. Yes. The guy that is the abuser, uh, predator, uh, went to prison uh, based on Theo and others uh, that played in the NHL that this guy coached. But in 1996, in a Stanley Cup playoff game in Chicago with Theo Fleury, great little player, playing for the uh, Calgary Flames, he went ballistic on me in the first period after their team got two penalties, and then I gave him the third one. He, the most foul, vile dialogue you could ever imagine that mm. he wrote in his book, accurately, playing mm. playing with fire, uh, he attacked me. He challenged me to a fight outside in the parking lot. He called me the little shitbag asshole, blah, 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 and that, that was just the start of it. Mm -hmm. He took his helmet off at the end and threw it at me, and it hit my right skate. And right now, I can still feel that emotion, the, mm -hmm. the muscles twitching in my leg. I wanted to kick that helmet back in his face. But again, relax, shoulders, breathe. I threw him out of the game. Four years fast forward. Theo Fleury signs an $8 million one-year free agency contract with the New York Rangers. The league put him in the substance abuse program right off the bat so he didn't start the season. First game back, December 19th of 2000 in Madison Square Garden against the St. Louis Blues. Joel Quinville coaching that team and Tyson Nash, a second-year pro, trash-talking guy, loose helmet, long hair. He'd get touched. He'd flip the helmet off, throw the head back, mm. try and draw penalties. At the end of the first period, there was a scrum down in the corner at Madison Square Garden. It disbanded, and the guys went to their dressing rooms except Theo Fleury. He met me at center ice on the red line right between the two benches at Madison Square Garden. He had tears in his eyes. He said, Carrie, I'm trying to clean my life up, honest. I haven't done drugs. I haven't done alcohol in X number of, of weeks, months. He said, I'm trying to clean my life up, honest. Don't let him talk to me like that. Mm. Now, Human nature, 
with what he did to me, mm-hmm. I could have said just yeah. as easily, tell you what, how do you like it? Yeah. yeah you remember the little shitbag asshole and the, throwing the helmet at me and mm. challenging me uh, to fight in the parking lot? How do you like it? Yeah. But instead, I saw a wounded human being standing in front of me. Like one of my kids, I wanted to take his pain away. Mm. I said, Theo, if I can get Tyson Nash back here at this very spot to start the next period and he gives you a sincere apology, will you accept it like a man? He said, yes, I will. I said, now, promise if I get him here, you won't break a stick over his head. He said, I promise. (laughs) I went right into the visiting team coach's room at Madison Square Garden. I told Joel what had happened. He said, Kerry, do you want me to tell Tyson to take his gear off? He thought I was going to throw him out of the game. I said, well, how about a, a sincere apology? I said, probably good for Theo, and it might not even hurt your guy. He said, great idea. And he ran into the St. Louis Blues locker room. Now, mm. I'm standing at center ice with Theo Fleury as the, the uh, St. Louis Blues came out of the Zamboni entrance, and Tyson Nash looked like he was wanting to do a skate by. Mm. I flagged him over. I said, and his lip was quivering. Tyson Nash was affected by this. I said, Tyson, mm. do you have something to say to this man? Tyson Nash looked him right in the eye. He said, Theo, I'm sincerely sorry for what I said. I went way below the line. So inappropriate. And I apologize sincerely. I wish you the best, all the best that you've got ahead of you. And he tapped him on the shin pad. Mm. I said, Theo, you you good with that? He said, I'm good with that. I said, boys, shake hands. Let's play. Mm. Well, that was December 19th of 2000. Tyson Nash did what he typically does that night. He drew Brown, the defenseman for the the, uh, Rangers, into a fight. Brown got 17 minutes in penalties. The, The Blues scored on the power play. They won. And boom. Now we fast forward another 10 years. Hmm. So I'm retiring. I'm sitting down to write the book. Theo had written his book, Playing With Fire. He trashed me big time hmm. in, the, in his book and, and wrote about that situation in 96. Hmm. And I always took the perspective, I'd like to take a bad situation and try and turn it into something good. Yeah. So I wanted to have closure on that story that Theo wrote. I want to bring this to full circle. So I called Tyson Nash, and he's in Phoenix at the time, and I said, Tyson Carey here, I'm writing a book, I'd like your permission to share a story. Do you recall the situation, December 19, 2000, with Theo Fleury in Madison Square Garden? Vinny, the phone went dead. Wow. Dead airspace. Hmm. He said, Carey, that was a life-altering situation. It was career-changing. I said, talk to me. And... Hmm. I I put in my book, The Final Call, verbatim what he wrote in his own words about how, as a young player, coaches would tell him he had to play a certain way and and he could score as a young player. But once he spent four years in the minor leagues and he got his shot, he was going to do whatever it was to stay in the game. And he trash-talked and he did, you know, the drawing penalties and, and he said... I was ultimately a, a referee's nightmare, and he said, I did whatever I had to do to stay in the game. And Coach Quenville told me, if I could be the most hated man in the league, I'd have a job with the St. Louis Blues. And he led the team in penalties drawn. He said, at least I was good in one stat. Hmm. Now, he said, I used to do whatever and say whatever until that night at Madison Square Garden when I said things to Theo Fleury and Theo was an easy guy to get to, and he was type A and, and aggressive, and you could get to him pretty easy. But I went way below the line, and he said, I've got referee Kerry Fraser to thank 
for playing dad and straightening me out. He said, I never after that went after a player's personal life, his family, or anything of that sort. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Wow. Now, what we started this with the, the question or the, or the, uh, the item of, can you make a, a difference in someone's life? Something simple. So coach, teammate, player, mm. something as simple as asking a guy to apologize yeah. for something that was inappropriate. Yeah. This, this was powerful oh, because yeah. to, to this day, Tyson Nash still talks about it in, in interviews. Theo Fleury still talks about the situation mm. as I do when we speak at various events. Mm. Mm. What a powerful story, man. What a powerful Truly. story, right? But simple. You said, simple. Right, simple, exactly. But I, I think that's the biggest misconception that goes on in the game is a lot of times we take, okay, here's what the NHL is doing. And then we think as coaches, oh, I'm going to go do that drill and I, I see what I see and I'm going to go do it that way. And we just yeah. fast forward. But things like this, stories like this, like if people knew more of the background of this is the life skill, this is the stuff that's going on at that yeah. level. Cause at the youth level, it's so bad. This, this trashing thing and all that stuff. I, I hear stories from people that, you know, high ups that are just like, they're struggling with this, with this type of environment and these, this type of culture of what's going on. And people just saying whatever they want to say. Like it just, and it doesn't matter. And what happens is the youth, a lot of times, or most of the time, don't actually know what they're saying. They're just talking crap to talk, right? It's just like, but we know where it's coming from. If they're saying it, it came from some type of influence elsewhere, whether it's certain friends, parents, coaches, somewhere they were influenced to think that way. Whereas at the pro level, I think there's that misconception that, I wish we heard more of these type of stories that people understood like this goes on, these apologies, this character, it goes on a lot more than people realize at the highest levels. And if, if that was out more, right, if people just understanding this exists more, I think it would influence the youth culture a lot more because it's, it's gotten ridiculous at the, at the youth culture, just the things you hear. I think that's the part to like, what is it? What else kind of comes to mind that inspires you to think about of those differences of the misconceptions that, People need to understand when it comes to connection and relationships that at that at that level goes on more than maybe you realize. That's something maybe that comes to mind of you need to understand this is a real thing. There's a professionalism that goes on with being the best and this is how the best think and what they do. And it's not just this free for all that people think, oh, well, it's entertainment and they do whatever. And it's like, no, there is a line. If if anything, you know, talk about that part that you, from your experience that you feel. Well, I think you have to ask yourself the question, do you want to be a leader or do you want to be a follower? There are too many followers that are following social media and things that are uh, unhealthy, uh, that they think are cool. It's not cool. Uh, it takes somebody that has strength, inner strength and courage to stand up and say, hey, guys, that's not funny. That's not good. That hazing, that's not good. We can't do that. We, we need to be better than that. Let others do that, but let's try and lead them so they don't do it. I go back to, uh, and I was just in Montreal with the Montreal Canadian uh, Fantasy Camp and, and some legends, Guy Lafleur. Uh, I mean, some of your listeners weren't even oh. born when, when he was yeah, playing, yeah, but, yeah. but amazing guys. And uh, Stefan Richer was there. He was a first-round draft pick, very gifted scorer and player. And Rich told me about his first training camp as an 18-year-old 
first round draft pick of the Montreal Canadiens, French Canadian kid right from the city of Montreal. And he ends up going to this. He sees his locker, his name's on it. He's got his jersey number name on the back. He's so proud. And he goes out and he does his first scrimmage, comes in, takes the jersey off, throws it in the hamper. Larry Robinson, Hockey Hall of Fame, amazing player, leader, gets up off his stall, walks over to the hamper, pulls the jersey out of the hamper, turns it over, and puts it in, lays it out nicely. He went to Stefan Richer, said, Steph, we play for the crest on the front, not the name on the back. Richer had thrown it in, and his name was up top. Now, that's story one. That's lesson one. First practice that this guy goes to from a leader, from a guy that is respectful of the game and the the, the club that he plays for. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Now they go to Edmonton in the preseason. Lee Fogland was the captain of the Edmonton Oilers. Stefan Richer saw him lined up at, at, behind the, the uh, goal line with the puck. Boom, he hit him right in the numbers, knocks him into the glass, turns around Fogland. They fight. He says, I think I do pretty good in the fight. If I go, we get five minutes each. I come back to the bench. Here's Larry Robinson again. He says, Steph, he said, when you see the numbers on the back of your opponent, you don't hit him. You've got to play off him. Don't hit him in the numbers and knock him into the, the glass face first. He said, you've got to respect your opponent if you want respect. Mm-hmm. Lesson two. This is like the first week this guy's with wow. the Montreal Canadiens. And Larry Robinson, as the leader, as a mentor, has taken this first round pick and sort of coaching him. It, it didn't come from Scotty Bowman, the coach. It came from a leader of the team. So players, if you want to be a leader, lead the right way yeah exactly amen amen and it's funny i was actually just talking to a coach this morning about this very thing of how the irony of coaching today is that there's so much more coaching by giving the power back to the players we spend so much time my way my way this is this is me 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 and it's like again right you don't have you have no idea how much easier life would be if you gave the power to them they're the ones experiencing it they're the ones going through this so the key now, the art to coaching is understanding how to unfold it and realize, okay, what can I do to guide you to go through the experience and be accountable for it yourselves here? Well, don't micromanage. Don't exactly, micromanage. Exactly. And that, that's the part that, that's a whole different art. That's the struggle, right? Is that we've been used to with a lot of coaching is I micromanage everything. I feel like my job is to take care of it all. And you get programmed, right? Because through the years, that's just what happens. It's the nature of coaching. Where yeah. when you start to see this other side is, well, wait a second, how do I pay attention more to, okay, what are your needs are and how do I then finesse it in a way where it's like, here, you experience it. It's your way. You run the ship. And it's such a different style that it's fascinating of how you've gone through it. And to see, like, talk about more of that, of how you've other referees that have come up, like, how have you inspired others to, as they're coming up and you've coached yourself in your own way of how you've led? What are some of those maybe stories or something that comes to mind that besides just with the players, has there been anything else like in the culture of, okay, I'm a referee leader, right? If, if you want to put it in that section, what have you seen of that you've been able to do and implement inside of that sect of your culture? No differently than you as a coach. Mm. You have to know the personality of the individual that you're trying to impart information with Mm. or to 
Um, everybody's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we went into the two referee system, um, I was the guy and and I, I don't say this boastfully, but I had been around for a long time and I'd done a whole bunch of, uh, Stanley cup finals and what have you, and didn't wear a helmet. And mm-hmm. so recognized both by the players on the ice, but also fans off the ice. And some of our guys that came in wanted to be that guy. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be in charge. And they created a competition on the ice as to who could call the most penalties. Mm-hmm. Or if penalties were happening in my area, all of a sudden the guy 100 feet away would put his arm up and rush in to make the call. Nice. Uh, and so I had to get them to understand that we were working as a team, but we also, it didn't matter who made the call. What's important was, was it the correct call? Did the call stand the test, uh, the litmus test? And so also when we have a commercial timeout, I'd be able to uh, say to them, uh, maybe they were in the way, they weren't moving their feet. And I would be able to say, you know, that last uh, sort of sequence where they were cycling the puck down low, you see the, the sign on the board over there. I said, you got stuck standing there. I said, you have to see the game in advance and know that the puck's going to be there one or two clicks ahead down on the on the chessboard mm. and you in advance of that have to move and i saw guys standing stiff legged so i'd say i never stand with stiff legs i'm always flexed in a flex position mm. because that's where you move from skate shoulder width apart not stiff you know because if it's time to move and things happen really fast uh-huh. as you know mm. you got to bend your knees i'm always in a flex and i don't look at the puck don't be a puck watcher. There was all kinds of things that I could impart to guys. Oh, yeah. Some guys, some guys took it, but it's in the presentation. I didn't want to be like the all-knowing, you know, guru of officiating. I just wanted to help them. When we flew together, uh, I might have a, a game with a, a young ref for three or four games. We'd fly together, and I would uh, get the DVD out from the game that uh, the team gave us, and and we'd have a look at it, and and I would point out all the positive things because it really needs to be positive mm-hmm. in, a, in a coaching perspective too often we just focus on the negative uh even for me personally i want to know what i did wrong i, I know what i do right. right but but i'm okay to handle that it, it doesn't right. it's not it's not like i beat myself up or i i have to worry about my self-confidence because i had a fair amount of that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so That's awesome. those those are the kinds of things that uh i think are uh, shared, but yeah. they have to be done in a way that is productive, right. uh, and it has to be accepted. Uh, sometimes guys wouldn't accept it. I yes. mean, you know, the, the one thing that I I think sticks in my mind that is important to share from a coaching perspective is the out of control coach that I see sometimes uh, when I watch my. Uh, uh, grandson play U18 Flyers hockey. He's a good, yeah, yeah. good player. Um, the at various levels, you're going to have that coach that just goes out of control and ballistic and screaming and yelling. Yeah, I had one that comes to mind: Mark Crawford in the National Hockey League. Mm. Crow was a young coach, first year coach in the NHL in 1995, a shortened season as a result of a player strike, and. I had him towards the end of the season in Tampa, the Quebec Nordiques. Peter Forsberg was a rookie on that team. They lost one nothing in a great game 
the night before in uh, Tampa. This particular night, they were playing uh, the Florida Panthers, which were way behind them. They 16 points behind. They just didn't have a good run, and they were beating this uh, this Quebec Nordique team. And with a couple of minutes left, I gave Peter Forsberg a penalty. The uh, the Nordique were down by two goals. Crawford would not put his line up on the ice for mm. the faceoff. He wanted me to come to him. Right. And I knew I'm taking a risk. I knew he's going to unload on me, but I want to get this game going. I went over to the bench. I said, Mark, I need four players on the ice, and I need them now, please. Mm. He went off on me, Vinny, like you can't believe. Foul, mm. vile, unbelievable, disgusting. Mm. I wrote about it in my book. And mm. the muscles are twitching. I got the adrenaline going. The veins are bulging in my neck. I got sawdust in my mouth, dry, ready to fight. <sighs> took a breath. I said, are you done? He said, yeah, I'm finished. I said, Mark, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard from any coach in my entire career. Mm. And I said, there's not one guy on this bench that believes what you just said. I said, as a matter of fact, you probably could have deserved more penalties than I gave you. Mm. But you and I are going to save that for another day. I need you to put four guys on the ice, and I need them now, please. Mm. And, I, and I skated away. And muscles shaking, twitching. Game ends. I'm still in the dressing room, and I'm... Sure. So knock on the door. I open the door. Mark Crawford got his head down. He says, Kerry, can I have a word with you? I said, yeah, come on in, quick, come on in. I didn't want media or anybody seeing him at our door. Mm -hmm. I said, have a beer. Cracked a beer. He said, uh, listen, I really apologize. You're right. You didn't deserve that. I don't know what's going on. We're picked to win it this year. And he said, our, our, my team's going south really fast, right at the worst time of the season. I don't know what to do. I said, would you like some advice? Mm. He said, please. I said, the best team that I saw throughout my career was the New York Islanders dynasty team, four Stanley Cups in a row. Mm. And the guy behind the bench, Al Arbor, when he yelled at me, I knew I screwed up because he never yelled. I said, you, on the other hand, never shut up. You're screaming and yelling constantly. And I said, you upset your players, and then your players think that it's okay to come and yell at us. And... I said, you're not focused. He went, are we the worst team for yelling? I said, ask the two linesmen, Ray Scampanello, Hall of Fame guy, and uh, Greg Dvorsky. Mm. I said, they both said, absolutely, your team's the worst. I said, so there's a possible lesson for you. Do as you wish. But I said, I'm going to tell you right here, right now, in front of those two gentlemen as my witness, I'm going to give you a career warning. I said, what that means is if you ever yell at me again, if you ever curse at me off the bench, I am going to immediately give you a bench penalty. I'm not going to say one more and you get it. It's happening right here, right now. Mm. And I said, if you persist, I'm going to throw you out of the game. Mm. Do you accept that? He said, I accept that. We shook hands. We had a beer on it. Now, a year later, they moved to Colorado, they win the Stanley Cup that year. And it's the same time of year, and it is uh, in Anaheim game. Claude Lemieux is playing now for the Colorado Avalanche. And uh, I call a penalty. Adam Foote breaks a stick over a guy. Obvious penalty late in the game. Up mm -hmm. goes the hand. 
And as I'm 85 feet away from Crawford's bench at the penalty bench to assess the uh, the uh, penalty, I hear Crow with that distinctive voice, Carrie, what the f***? That's all he got out. Oh. Boom. I teed him up. He dropped his head. Now they got two penalties. Claude Lemieux came over. He said, Gary, just give us one penalty. Don't give us two penalties. Look at the score at the time. I said, you go tell Mark Crawford, Florida. He said, Florida? Florida. He said, we're in Anaheim. What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, you go say Florida. He knows. And that I never, ever had another squeak out of uh, Mark Crawford. We understood. Mm, yeah. The line was drawn. He crossed it. He got it. And then we were done for the rest of our career. Mm. Wow. What an unbelievable. And that's, that's, that's not being a hard ass on my point. Right. That's, set, that's setting the tone, acceptable, yeah. mm-hmm. acceptable behavior. Exactly. Well, it's again, it comes back to, right, of what I stand for and having a communication where, okay, this is where we are. This is where we are. Let's mm-hmm. have a conversation. This is how we're going to build our relationship on standards, right? And basically... I think that's the part that gets lost a lot in translation. And to bring it back to your point about social media and the way things have, have changed the dynamic of communication is that you look online, you can now, there, every idea is out there. It's all out there. And I think what people struggle with now is that, and what we try to really emphasize is simplicity plus consistency to our players is because, yeah, sure, you can be anything you want to be. You can think anything you want to think, and there's studies that'll prove one way you think and studies that'll prove another. But it has nothing to do with that. The amount of information isn't what matters anymore because you can see everything now. What matters is what are you committing to? What matters to you? And I think that's the part that is so fascinating, right? And I think it's a perfect segue to, to switch into of when we talk about commitment and you know people that have been pioneer and coaches in the game, I'd love to hear about your Roger Nielsen. Right, Gary, I'd love to hear of like your experiences with, with him because obviously you spent, I'm sure, plenty of great, you know, situations and experiences with him. And would love to hear that influence of, you know, share with that because there was a man that obviously committed and, and, uh, earned a lot of respect in the game, absolute legend. And, uh, would love to hear, you know, your thoughts, you know, and all that. I first, uh, became aware of Roger Nielsen when I was playing midget AAA hockey. And he came to scout our team. And as I said, we had some really good players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad was the coach. And, and uh, he asked uh, my dad about uh, the little guy with number eight on that uh, just beat up a, a, a big guy. And uh, my dad said, well, that, that's my kid, Kerry. And, and uh, he said, wow, he's, he's a feisty little guy, pretty tough. And uh, uh, I, I know Roger uh, didn't um, – he thought I was too small to, to maybe play for the Peterborough Peets. Uh, I was, but he had, uh, the, uh, the interest, shall I say, uh, when I was, uh, when I was playing uh, midget before mm-hmm. I moved on, um, uh, as a coach in the national hockey league, Roger was so, uh, thoughtful mm-hmm. and, and he, he was a, a calm guy, but his brain never stopped. He was always thinking of ways that he could, uh, <laughs> take things to his advantage, let's mm. say. Uh, the rule was changed because uh, on a penalty shot, he put big defensemen in the net and his, instead of the goalie. And as soon as the player touched the puck in the penalty shot, he instructed the D to charge him and take him down at the blue line. Uh, <laughs> I mean, who's, who thinks... Yeah. Who, who, 
who lays awake at night thinking of that kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Roger did. And then he was the first guy that went with the video thing. Uh, and we called him Captain Video. Uh, but he, he, was, uh, he was a pioneer uh, mm-hmm. with, with the way that you break down a, a play with, from players and you coach them and teach them. He was a teacher by trade. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that really demonstrated his success, I think, as a coach. Uh, waving the white flag, uh, the towel in, in Chicago in the playoffs, uh, which... Uh, ended up uh you know getting suspended for uh it was just he did things that could change the game and change a series uh his players believed him in him and trusted him and i think uh when i look back at raj and, and his uh he was brought in in ottawa to coach one more time as the head coach to get his record to uh was it a thousand games or something? Uh, mm. And uh, he was ill at the time. Uh, but I tell you, uh, the the hug, the embrace that I got and gave Roger Nielsen at the end of that game is something that I'll always remember. Um, mm. Terrific human being. He cared about people. Uh, yeah. He cared about his players. He cared about everybody. Very spiritual guy, uh, but but wore it quietly. Mm. Um, just a, a pillar of a, of an individual. Uh, the game misses him. We all miss him. Uh, but he, he, he left his mark. Um, and his, his coaching clinics even broke ground in that regard. Uh, the Roger Nielsen coaching clinics, uh, bringing minds together, uh, to teach amateur coaches or coaches of different levels, uh, the, the, the proper way, uh, to coach, to deal with individuals. Um, I, I just think that if you look back at all the great coaches, and, I, and I'm talking Scotty Bowman and, and Al Arbor and, uh, you know, down on the list mm. uh, of guys that have been extremely successful, Roger Nielsen, to my mind, is, is the one guy that made the biggest impact mm. in the changing of philosophy. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Terrific. And, and I think what's phenomenal about his legacy, right, and what people remember the most, the common theme everyone keeps talking about is his connection, his ability to connect to people. It wasn't the X's and O's part was the one thing, but it's the one thing that always comes to mind is people just, like you said, the spiritual aspect. Yeah. And I think that's the part that is so hard for us. And, and maybe it's even a male thing also in a lot of ways that we want to use our brain so much and be logical, 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 that right. that feel, that thing, that emotional part, that connection piece is something that is so, so, so much more powerful, I, I think, in a lot of ways. Like I look at even in your story, what's so inspiring about you, right, is that you look at your life of now for how long, you know, and then get a little bit on the personal end, right, of like living with cancer and still being out there and doing what you do, it like it inspires to me. It inspires the shit out of me, and I think well, thank you. I think that might be the first time I've cursed on the show, but <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, Carrie, it's it's amazing to me to watch, right? Because it's you look at it and also trying to be a thought leader and being out there, but watching what you do with where you are and and how you're able to do it. A lot of what I when I watch what you're doing, it's it's from the spirit. It's from you just you feel it. 
and and you can feel it coming off of you. Like it's like the presence at the level four. You just you know again. I know it's you know obviously it's how I feel. So it is. It's it it's what it is. Of like there's just that's something there, and I'd love to I'd love for you to dig into that of how you still keep going and you still keep hammering away and it's amazing to you know, all the children, all the grandchildren, like it's like such a big family and yet you're balancing and you're going, man. And like, what's that, what's that engine? What is that? What is that? That just that thing, right. That just keeps you going. That just is so unique and special that it's, it inspires again. Like I said, to me, it's like, wow, wow. What, what well, is that? I thank you. Uh, you, you really humble me with those kind of comments and, and, as we were talking about Roger, something came to me, and maybe maybe Roger sent me a message. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I wanted to say about Roger that he put other people first mm-hmm. as opposed to himself. And that leads right into what you were talking about. If you can put other people ahead of your own desire, ambition, motivation, what's in it for me um, – I guess I was raised with a sort of a philosophy that if I receive a dollar, I want to give at least two back. I want to give more than I get. Um, because ultimately what you receive when you give is greater than, than anything else because you can see the benefit to others to help them. Um, so with, you know, I, I feel really blessed, Vinny, with the, the cancer uh, that I have, the form of, of a blood cancer, um, because it's a light pail for me to carry. Uh, I'm managing it. I'm on nine chemo pills uh, a week, even though they don't have a cure for what I have. I'm able to help create awareness because I really could have, should have died from this, mm. from a blood clot. And a fellow... Uh, a former uh, colleague of mine, Mick Magoo, referee. Uh, Mick died a year ago of a massive stroke. Mm. I just was in Montreal doing some cancer awareness at two Montreal Canadian games uh, at the invitation of, of uh, owner Jeff Molson, wonderful, wonderful mm. human being. And I had this guy come up to me from Saskatchewan, and he said, hey, I'm, uh, I own the farm next door to Mick Magoo. And I said, oh, man, I said, well, that was so, how's Angie and the kids? And he said, they're doing fine. I said, talk to me about what Mick had, like a blood clot, right? Massive blood clot, went to his brain, done. He said, yeah. He, I said, I'll bet you he had the same thing that I have, essential thrombocythemia, which is your platelet count. It's a mutant gene develops in your bone marrow and the platelets keep flooding. And ultimately, you can have a blood clot that goes to your heart or your brain and you're done. He said, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Now, that could, that could have been prevented, Vinny. All, and for me, all I needed was a, a routine blood test. Uh, I was going to get a fatty cell removed from my arm. No, no big deal. But I had a, a routine pre-op blood work done, and boom, my platelet count was over the roof, and I ended up at a hematologist. They diagnosed this rare form of uh, – it's in the leukemia family. No cure for it, but we can manage it. And if Mick Magoo had have had a blood test, I'll bet you he'd be here today. Wow. So that's, that's kind of a mission. Uh, there's another uh, – not another. There is a legend, because I don't put myself in that category, mm-hmm. but – Paul Henderson from the 1972 Canada Cup uh, Summit mm. Series against the Russians. He scored the winning goal. Mm. Paul Henderson uh, was a Toronto Maple Leaf, and he went to the World Hockey. Anyway, uh, legend 
uh, he has a blood cancer as well. And Paul and I did a, a public service announcement that's playing across Canada, you know, just trying to get people, if you don't feel good, and especially in today with the, you know, coronavirus yeah, and things, yeah. if you don't feel good, go to the doctor, get a blood test. Let's not be the, the jock mentality that we are, oh, which yeah. is if the bone's not through the skin, you know, just keep going. Oh, yeah. uh, because you never know. I mean, if I hadn't have had that routine blood test, I'll bet you I would not be here. Mm. Mm. That's amazing. Huh? And that that's the power of uh, what was that, that had you that routine blood test just going in and boom, that moment, right? It's amazing how those little moments. So what do we do now? I want to share it. If, if yeah. one life can be saved with the message that's going out there, then wonderful. We saved the life. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So do for others, man. Do yeah, others. of course. Of course. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Carrie, when you, when you think about, when you look back now, right, obviously have a whole experience, a whole book of life. And you look back on, you know, what, starting off when I was younger, from my younger days of to now, of something that I wish I'd understood maybe quicker. That could have been something that maybe would have been cool to, when I look back, if I could have understood this just a little bit faster, it would have been cool to have this. Because at the end of the day, we all look back and we go, oh, I'm very happy and the way my life turned out is the way it turns out and I'm blessed. And we get it right on that end. But if you really look at it from that lens of this would have been cool and maybe more I could have accomplished and done with that spiritual aspect, what's that thing that you look back on and you think about would have been cool? to have a little bit of an understanding faster on? Well, you know, that's really a thought-provoking question, Vinny, but um, I, um, I think everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all will have certain regrets from the past that we should have, could have done better. Maybe it was a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was uh, family time. Sure. Uh things that we maybe had missed or we were more worried about our careers or ourselves and not so much of, of the people that uh, were close to us and loved us and supported us, whatever. And I'm just sure. throwing things out there. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I think that we all evolve in a certain way and we can, you know, we can enhance that, uh, that those gifts that we're given, which I think are from God, mm-hmm. uh, and we can uh, use them. Uh, in a positive way, or we can use them in a negative way, and that's called our free will. Mm-hmm. And and I came to the conclusion that I had many things coming in my direction that uh, I had to make decisions based on my free will. Mm-hmm. But I would take a second and I'd think, now, is this good? Is this something that is of God and good? Or is it something that is not so good and there's two factions there's good and there's evil so i made a conscious decision that i would take a breath i would think about which team did i want to play for Mm. did i want to score goals for this guy or did i want to score goals for this guy Mm. because ultimately that we've we've got temptations coming at us every every day probably you know multi multi times per day and 
we can make those those right decisions, which causes us to grow in a mm-hmm. in a in a right way, in the light, in the in the right way, uh, or we can take it on ourselves and be influenced by ah, I'm a, I'm a this and I'm that I'm the big shot and I'm the so that again comes back to inner reflection and and conscious awareness as to the person we want to be, yeah. how we can how we can help others, uh, and how can we contribute uh, in a society that sometimes uh, is is run amok. Can we be a positive influence or are we going to be a negative influence? Are we going to get on social media and trash talk somebody or we think we have a platform and we're going to, you know, curse and swear and, and, you know, because that's kind of in vogue. Mm. No, it's not right. So that's again, comes back on us. It comes back to the individual to make the right decisions, decide the person you want to be, the, the influence that you want to have. And at the end of the day, I know the guy that I want to score goals for. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Sniping that one, buddy. <laughs> All right. You are a sniper. Yeah. <laughs> I thank you. It's <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, this was um, you know amazing to have you on, buddy. And you know, thank you so much for caring, for taking the time and. You know, to be able to share, you know, and, and give us the wisdom, right? It's, um, I'm very grateful to have been able to have this and, you know, for us to have been able to, you know, start building a bond and a friendship and, and obviously be able to be here and put this out to people. Cause at the end of the day, I know how uh, difficult it can be sometimes time wise and stuff like that. So time is the best, you know, it's the best thing. Anytime you can get that from anyone. And the fact that you took the time with us today to share was, uh, was awesome. Feel- well, I value your friendship and I value what you're doing as a leader and in mm. your leadership uh, of, of young players. Um, that's that's a mission. You mm. you have a mission uh, and you're scoring goals for the right guy. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, brother. Thank you. Well, that's awesome. Well, we'll catch up soon, buddy. Thank you again for taking the time. Okay, buddy. Well, we thought we were done, but nope, we still had a little bit more to go. <laughs> so back out and we go. That's the biggest part, right, is being able to talk about. I thought we hit so many good things that typically you don't hear, you know, right. about from the referee perspective and that respect level thing. It's, it, it sounds simple, right, enough because of how hard we've worked at it through the years. But that's the part that always trying to just push on the envelope. It's on us. You know what? It's about life, really. Yeah. It's, it's about growth. Uh, as you as you um, uh, embark on a career, uh, you're actually if you want to do a plot and a graph, uh, and and players are always worried about stats. You know, yeah. each week I did this and I did that. How many hits I had and how many. So we're really in a statistical kind of of uh, focus. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how we our yardstick. We measure it. Um, there's other components that I think are just as important uh, statistically mm-hmm. uh, by the people we touch and the way we touch them, as mm-hmm. opposed to the goals and the assists uh, that we, that we uh, record. Mm-hmm. Um, because after a goal is scored, everybody's excited. Right. The, the guy that gets the helpers on it, that set the play up, that maybe is third or fourth guy in, they don't get credit for it, right. but they were part of it. Oh, yeah. they, they, 
they started it. Mm-hmm. They they made the right decision to move the puck in the right place uh, or on a forecheck or whatever. So um, that being the good teammate, um, you know, following the system and and it's it's about growth uh both on and off the ice Uh, i think the more you grow off the ice the better you're going to play on the ice exactly that's what's such a great point about that is the um how many older players when they're done i always love to ask don't you feel like you play the game better now than you did when oh my god yeah i feel so much my body just won't do it and i and i genuinely believe it's because of we stop. Like I thought what's really powerful is when you talked about how you know you we started to look at the game from the perspective of another human being and realizing to calm yourself and all that. And that's that that's that part right there. That just for people to to realize that self awareness. Ugh. It's like it's so powerful that it's uh everything okay? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm getting a what is it, Kathy? What did I do? No. <laughs> <laughs> we're close we're close <laughs> you know what uh i just had another thought too um about um relationships that are that are evolving and changing you know we talk about developing relationships and and uh the ebb and flow uh of relationships trying to cultivate them um there was a player uh Beyond Theo Fleury, uh, Chris Knuckles Nyland. Uh, Knuckles was a 300 penalty minute man a year, played for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, he was fearless. Uh, obviously the name Knuckles, uh, he didn't get for using hand cream. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but Knucks, um, had some difficulties over social issues, uh, as well that are very highly publicized. Uh, and he did not like me at all. I would say that he and, Theo, both, if there's such a thing as, as hate for a referee, they both had it for me. Um, and, uh, Nux, I watched very closely on the ice. He thought I was picking on him constantly. Um, but after he retired, um, he, we did a, a charity tour for Special Olympics, uh, with the Boston Bruin alumni, Ray Bork and Terry O'Reilly and a whole bunch of guys on a bus, Kenny Linsman, uh, Rick Middleton. And we went from Toronto uh, through Ontario. Uh, and when I got on the bus uh, in Toronto and Nux was sitting in the front seat, he stared at me again like, eh, you know, eh. he had that grr. Oh, yeah. And because he hadn't let go of it. And he was struggling with, with some addiction issues. He was in recovery. Uh, so I went to the middle of the bus and, and every time I saw a player, I had a flashback and a story. And uh, I had a game in the old Boston Garden where I uh, gave Knuckles a uh, match penalty for knocking Rick Nifty Middleton's teeth out. Uh, and we had to go to a hearing. Um, the, the, the play was interesting because uh, I saw him and Nifty Middleton, who's a great scorer, hardly got any penalties at all. It was a bad matchup, and I'm aware. And they're going to the net, but they collide, they fall down, and the puck started to go out of the zone the other way. And uh, I was on the other side of the ice, one referee back then. I sort of entrapped him, I guess you would say, because I'm always aware of this guy on the ice. And as the play was going up the other way, I looked over and I saw Knuckles, and he's, our eyes met, and I knew he was ticked off. He was going to do something stupid. Oh, yeah. So I turned to follow the play, and then I snapped my head back, Right as he was butt ending 
nifty Middleton in the mouth, knocked his front teeth out. Oh. Match penalty. Back then, 10 minutes, deliberate injury. Mm. We go to a hearing in uh, Montreal two days later because it's just before the playoffs, emergency meeting. And Brian O'Neill is the adjudicator, vice president of the league that's going to do discipline. I walked into the boardroom in Montreal at the NHL office, and there's Sir Savard, the general manager, shakes my hand, gentleman. Knuckles is staring daggers at me. He mm. wants to kill me. Mm. Cold as ice. I sit down. Brian O'Neill read my report. He said, Chris, do you have anything to say for yourself? Now, Nux is from Boston, right? Mm. Boston kid. Mm. His dad was a Green Beret. Oh, wow. He said, yeah. He said, yeah, Mr. O'Neill, I got something to say for myself. He says, referee Fraser here. He says he calls more penalties on me than any other ref in the league. He's always picking on me. He's always watching me. And just to prove my point, if he had have been watching what he should have been watching, which was the play go the other way, he wouldn't have seen me butt in Middleton in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> While Sir Savard spits his coffee out on the table, he says, Chris, Chris. He said, Mr. O'Neill, Chris did not mean to say that. So Brian O'Neill said, Chris, there isn't a referee that would be worth a pound of salt in this league if he didn't watch you every second you're on the ice. Now, would you like to see a replay? They both declined the replay. They had him on tape. And he got an eight-game suspension back then in, in the 90s. This was, like, huge. Oh, yeah. So from that moment on, he hated me. So we're on the bus. And he still doesn't like me. Mm. I'm in the middle, and got, and I start telling stories, and guys are sharing stories, and the bus starts to shrink. The front, the back's uh. coming to the middle, and now the, and I see Nux coming up. He's, he wants to be part of this. So he gets within earshot, and Nifty's sitting across from me. I said, hey, Nifty, remember the time that Nux butt-ended your teeth out in the Boston <laughs> Garden? Nux goes, oh, that was BS. He said, that was my glove. That wasn't. So now Nifty uh-huh. goes, you bullshit. He said, you, you, you used a stick. You got my teeth. So now they're going at it. It's funny. That's awesome. Here's the, here's the kicker. As we go through the games, and I'm doing a hot stove hosting with uh, at a party yeah. afterwards after each game with the local local players and, yeah. and community. And one night in the middle of it, I had uh, Terry O'Reilly, Ray Bork, and Knuckles on. And I knew Nux was off. Mm. He wasn't, he wasn't right. And so I said to him after we finished, I said, you okay, pal? And he was in recovery and he pointed at the alcohol. He said, that stuff's starting to look good to me. Mm. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll either get the bus moving or if the guys want to stay, I'm going to get a cab and you and I are going back to the hotel. Mm. That's exactly what we did. We sat down, we had a coffee, we chatted. I got him to the hotel. From that moment on, a bond. Wow. And and he, I love the man. We're we're terrific friends. Uh, so that's how relationships can change, mm. and that's how putting somebody else first yeah. and not not thinking about oh always me 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 yeah. me. Um, it was the right thing to do. So uh, I'm on a radio show every uh, every uh, Tuesday at one uh, thirty-five on TSN. 690 Montreal, which is the uh, the English uh, uh, host of uh, Montreal Canadian Broadcast. Yeah. Nux and I do do a 20-minute hit every Tuesday. Uh, we're dear friends. Uh, I'm so proud of, of him where he's come uh, so cool. to this point. And it's it's a relationship that uh, I value and treasure. Yeah, that is awesome. That's amazing. And it, it's amazing, right, how those are always the ones where it's you go through those tough experiences together. 
And that's, it's yeah. amazing. It's like, it's like, um, anyone who fought or fights, you know, knows that feeling of we don't, we didn't like each other as we didn't like each other. And then we fought and it was like, we had respect for each other. Right. And it's, it's right. just that it's that nature of the animal of like that animal instinct of when that respect comes, it's, it forms a different bond. Absolutely. So, uh, there we go. Yeah. Another, awesome. uh, another, another lesson in life. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. man. awesome. Well, again, can't thank you enough, buddy, for taking the time. This was, this was awesome. And, uh, okay, pal. had a blast, bro. What an amazing experience to share time with the legendary Carrie Frazier. I could seriously listen to his stories all day. <laughs> I hope this episode has as big of an impact on you as it did on me. I know as a coach, there's so much wisdom packed into Carrie's words and experiences. Uh, and I know this episode will most definitely help some coaches, players, and even parents out there who are listening. And as always, please comment or share your thoughts with us on this episode. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you'd like to stay up to date on our latest episodes. And remember, our Roger Nielsen's Coaching Clinic live event has been canceled, but we are continuing to showcase our presenters in our new online Facebook group called Roger Nielsen's Coaches Connection. Come join in on the fun and learn something new while we are adapting to this challenging time. Stay safe, my friends.